As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. All right, welcome back to another installment of the Wide Ride Podcast. I'm Manny Navarro, Miami Hurricanes beat writer for The Athletic. Carlos Ledo of the MIA All Day Podcast is with me again. It's Wednesday around 3.45 p.m., November 2nd. Hurricanes are preparing to face Florida State. Uh, they pulled off a much-needed win on the road at Virginia 14-12 to last Saturday. I didn't go. I stayed home. So I could, I could actually go to Carlos's house for his uh, Halloween party, stayed home with the family. Uh, you know, wife is allowed to give me the the one request every year, Carlos, where where I can say, OK, I'm, I'll alter some plans and, and stay home. The Hurricanes were unbeaten. I probably would have skipped it. I would have gone with them to Charlottesville, but they were three and four going into that game. You can't blame me, right? Well, listen, bro, I, let's be honest. If they were seven and zero going into that game and you knew I was having a Halloween party, you were coming to the party. All right, fair point. I would have done it no matter what. No, oh, yeah, I would, have, I would yeah. have come no matter what. You would have faked it. You would have taken pictures. You would have posted old pictures of you in the airport, sent that up, and then uh, like Googled pictures of, of Virginia Stadium, and be like, "Oh, look here, I'm at the game." Well, I I tried to fake it as best I could on Saturday, listening to the radio broadcast, watching the game on television. Um, to be honest with you, I've done I've covered games both ways, in person and away. And I'll tell you that sometimes you see a lot more on television than you do in the stadium. The one advantage you get of sitting in the stadium is you get to see who's injured, who's going into the injury tent because they don't always mm -hmm. focus on that. You get to see pregame warmups, et cetera. But I was already tipped off before the game that Xavier Restrepo was going to be making this comeback uh, with limited reps. I tweeted that out pregame. I didn't even need to see Xavier go out on the field in full uniform. So every now and again, you know, the sources do come through for me and, and give me little updates. So I was able to get that. Uh, but overall, uh, Miami's offense was horrendous. Uh, Jake Garcia's first. That's, career, that's putting so it lightly. Putting it lightly. Putting it, putting it very lightly and and very worrisome, right? If if Jake is still under center, how they're going to look against the Seminoles, who are, who are a better team than Virginia. I wouldn't say they're far better than Virginia, but certainly a better team. They're 5-3. and three. Mike Norvell's got the program heading in the right direction now, really with a lot of great work in the transfer portal, not necessarily a lot of great recruiting. A lot of these are, are transfer portal fixes, so we'll see what that means long term. But 
Right now, Las Vegas agrees. They think the Seminoles are a seven and a half point favorite to win this game. Um, let's start with Virginia, though, and and your biggest takeaways from that game. Well, they came in with a clearly conservative game plan after eight turnovers a week before. You know, they came in saying we're not going to turn this ball over. We're not going to throw interceptions. We are going to put we're going to try and keep the ball within a nine yard box in terms of throwing the football. We will take our shots every once in a while. But we're not going to overcomplicate things, and we're just going to try and grind out a win, which is exactly what they did. Luckily, they got the ground game going a little bit with Henry Parrish, um, and they were able to hold on defense every time they they got Virginia down in the goal line area. If not, that could have been an ugly game. Yeah, I, I, look, they, they were able to run the ball, like you said, with Parrish, and that was good to see. It was good to see Inez Cooper, the, the true freshman right guard, come in and sort of help be, be that you know mauler that you needed up mm-hmm. front. That offense though is not going to be good enough to beat the Seminoles. Uh, no. At some point, uh, Josh Gaddis is going to is going to have to cut things loose. Um, really, the news of the day today is the one that I that I'm still unsure about. Mario Cristobal says that Tyler Van Dyke has looked good in practice. Will Mallory says that he's looked good in practice this week. We know he didn't practice last week. I saw him with his arm in a sling leading up to the Virginia game. He didn't dress for the Virginia game. He did make the trip. He was there to support, uh, provide some emotional support, but. Mario Cristobal today, I asked him specifically if Tyler's arm strength is where it was before he got hurt. And his response to me was, yeah, he looks good. He It looks normal to him uh, in terms of the arm strength. That still doesn't mean that we can 100% take it for certain that Tyler's going to play in this game or that he's ready to play. I know from talking to people uh, close to, to the situation that uh, Tyler is obviously has an NFL future, right? He's got to protect that. So we'll have to see whether or not he suits up if he does and he's able to play and be the guy who was Tyler Van Dyke before the injury, well, then I really do think Miami has a chance to win this game. If he doesn't, then, then the Hurricanes probably are not going to win this game. And, and my guess is it'll, it'll be a struggle to score points. Yeah, and it's it's a big question, not only because you're worried about whether or not he's going to be right when he's in there, uh, if, his, if he's over the injury enough to be able to deliver the football like he normally does. But then the other thing you're thinking about is, you know, can he last the entire game, the way this offensive line has played uh, this season? You know, the, you know, Jake Garcia, although he wasn't sacked a ton, he was under pressure pretty much the entire game, um, even going underneath. So that's that's a concern. Uh, you know, Jared versus had a pretty good season for Florida State. He only has four and a half sacks, I think, but he provides a lot of pressure up front. They've got Kalen DeLoach, a linebacker, who actually provides another set of pressure coming in on blitzes. And you're concerned whether or not Tyler can stand up to that pressure and to the shots he's going to take, not just because of what Florida State brings on defense, but this, as we all know, is going to be a supercharged emotional game, regardless of the records. And these guys are going to be looking to take each other's heads off because of the rivalry. So can Miami, I think the key early on is can they sustain, can they weather that storm of early emotion from Florida State? Uh, can they hang in there and protect Tyler Van Dyke and be able to be effective on offense? Because they're, he's going to take some shots. If he's not ready for it, he better get ready for it because these boys are going to come and pop yeah, and, and the reality is, you know, they are playing with with a uh, makeshift offensive line. Ja'Kai Clark is not 100%. Yes, he's getting healthier the more time he's away from the injury, but you have your starting center who's banged up. Uh, you're with, with Inez Cooper, your your true freshman right guard, who is ha- is basically having to be substituted, I think, when they go to passing situations because he's a great run blocker, but yeah. pass blocking is an entirely different situation. Logan Sagopolu went in there for a couple of snaps in the last game to kind of give him a breather. Um, and, and Florida State's, as you mentioned, their defensive line is going to be better than what Virginia has. 
so, you know, whether or not Tyler plays, we'll, we'll, we won't know really up until game time because Mario, you know, even though he says I'll update you on Friday or Thursday, there's never any update. No. I mean, this is all gamesmanship as a coach. He doesn't want uh, Mike Norvell and his staff to have any idea what's going on uh, leading up to that game. But uh, look, b- bottom line, Miami's four and four. Um, the hope is to be to get bold eligible, you know, and, and if you win this game, the reality is Miami has a lot more or Florida State has a lot more to lose than Miami does into this game. Because first off, you're going into this with your backup quarterback. Florida State's supposed to be the better team. Mike Norvell's in year three. Mario Cristobal's in year one. Um, I, I think the only thing Miami can do in this game is really hurt Florida State um, in, in terms and then, then really help themselves. Because people are going to look at this season no matter what, even if you win this game. And, and let's say you win it ugly, right? Like you won the Virginia game. You win it because you, you you create some turnovers. Miami's fan base isn't going to be happy by just skating past Florida State on a late field goal, right? Like this season, I think, is we, we've already have to accept the season for what it is or what it isn't, right, Carlos? Right, but I would also say that, listen, you you the one, you know, positive coming out of the Virginia game is something we discussed earlier in the pod, you know, actually for the last few weeks is, how how does Miami react to being down and, and can they finally come up with a win when they're down late and have to drive to win, tie? Uh, they went through four overtimes. They won an emotional game there at Virginia. They found a way to squeak out a win. They got that monkey off their back. They've got a win in the ACC, which helps. Um, if they're able to beat Florida State and, and do it, even if it's the way they beat Virginia, at least they gain more confidence and the season's going on an upward trajectory and they're feeling better about themselves in the program moving forward. And it gets the players to buy in more. You beat your rival, right? They, this team that stole a win from you last year, the team that started this whole domino effect of bringing Mario Cristobal in and getting rid of Manny Diaz because of the way the game ended last year, that's important. Uh, you know, regardless of what the season is, what the record is, if you're able to build, right? If you're able to build win to win or game to game and see progress, I think that's important. And beating your biggest rival is always important, regardless of the record. Well, I'm not trying to downplay it. I'm just, I'm just trying to put. Yes, you are, man. Yes, you I, are. Because no, both I, these I, teams are severely average and you are, you're downplaying it because the matchup looks like it sucks. But listen, it's going to be an exciting pillow fight because both these teams hate each other. <laughs> all right. This game actually reminds me a lot because of the way people are picking this game. And the way they're viewing the matchup, it reminds me a lot of that 2003 game where Miami was coming into Florida State, that game in the rain where Sean Taylor had three interceptions, and they gave Miami no shot in that game against Florida State. Everybody thought that Florida State was going to maul them, and Miami comes out with a win. It was an ugly win, but it was a great win for the program. And I think that's something that you may see this this game coming in. I think they may not play well. They may not play uh, you know, super explosive on offense. They may give us some big pl- plays on defense, but if they're able to grind out a win against Florida State, I think that does a lot for the confidence of the program. Yeah, I'm not saying it wouldn't help, Carlos. I mean, I think obviously in a lot of areas, like recruiting, for instance, right? Like this could really stick a dagger in Florida State, you know, help Miami with a guy like Hakeem Williams, who they want uh, to badly to, to get and convince to stay home. Um, it, it'll help them big picture wise as well uh, with future recruits and other guys down the road. But I, I'm also the opinion that I guess if they were to lose this week, nobody would be like, okay, you know, this is a tremendous, you know, this isn't losing the middle Tennessee state or Duke, right. Where, where you're really, people are going to be bad mouthing Mario saying, Oh, he sucks as a coach and th- this program sucks and blah, blah, blah. I think for the most part, um, if Miami were to lose this game, the sting factor wouldn't be what it was a couple of weeks ago. No, it's not the sting factor of losing to Middle Tennessee, but I can tell you, it's, as coming from a fan perspective, anytime you lose to Florida State, it sucks and it sucks bad because now you're dealing with 12 months 
of nonstop trash talking from the Florida State fans. And it's even for the dumbest things. If you look on Twitter about who landed a recruit, where they're ranked in the recruiting rankings right now, who's got more four stars, who's got more five stars. And it, it devolves into this whole discussion and argument about anything. And ultimately, it all leads up to this point where you have the game and it's bragging rights for 12 months. Because let me tell you, these Florida State fans, as much as Miami fans have tried to play it off and say, thank you for doing us a favor of beating us and bringing Mario in, they're feeling a little bit less happy about that. But at the same time, they thought that was sort of cushioning the blow from the loss last year. But it really wasn't because Florida State just kept hammering them about it. All right. Fair enough. I, I won't argue with you there. Um, all right. Uh, we have a mailbag that we're going to get to here. I don't know how many questions because I, I only sent it out about 20 minutes ago. It may not be very long. A couple of things I just wanted to talk about on this show. I'm working on a story about my editors asked me to do this. Uh, why is it so hard to win at Miami? You know, kind of why why over the last two decades has it been maybe harder than a lot of people think it to be? And and I, and I guess from a national perspective, for the people who don't live it every single day, um, you know, you're it's it's a curious story to read, right? Because you're not a Miami fan. You're, you're in another part of the country and you're probably like, well, why, why does the U suck? Why has it been so bad? So I'll guess I'll put you on the spot, Carlos, and I'll, and I'll ask you because uh, I've made phone calls this week. I've talked to a couple of former players. I, I called Brian Monroe, who's one of the, the WQAM voices now here locally. Uh, I, I called Malik Rozier, who's the only quarterback to lead Miami to a 10 win season uh, since since uh, this guy named Ken Dorsey. Uh, his last pass was thrown incomplete in the Fiesta Bowl. So I, I asked those guys. I'm having I have some other interviews lined up with some other uh, former assistants and people who have been around the program. But I'll ask you, Carlos, when you look at the last two decades and you say, OK, this is why uh, things haven't gone well. Is it, and I'll give you a couple of examples. You take it where you want. Is it the recruiting? The players just aren't as good as they were hyped up to be. Is it the coaching? The players aren't, you know, the coaches aren't developing the players the way they need to be. And, and the recruiting, uh, you know, they're responsible for, for not only getting the, the players, but uh, coaching them up and making them better. Is it uh, the play calling? Is it the fact that we've only had two years of Rhett Lashley being offensive coordinator where you're running this this spread offense that Miami needs to modernize itself? Is it the facilities, which are finally going to get upgraded here with the, the $300, $400 million they're raising to upgrade it? Uh, is it the school not spending enough money until now? Uh, is it all of the above? And, and I guess if you had to put them in an order from a fan's perspective, when you talk about mediocrity over the last 20 years, what's what's the order you, you chalk it up to? Well, uh, all those reasons you gave, yes. but i think for me specifically i think there was a change in the culture of the program after uh that 2002 lost ohio state while larry coker was a coach i think the the types of players they were recruiting the type of discipline and leadership they had within the program that eroded and that showed up on the field and I, i remember you know it was made to seem like something else later on but i remember one specific image sticks out in my mind in a game i think it was 03 or 04 where Maurice Sykes is on the sideline using his cell phone. And and that just burns in my mind because you would never see that before with, with all the other guys. Um, no, well, you couldn't do that in the 80s because they'd be with a big brick and it'd be very obvious, but that's not the point. <laughs> um, to me, the lack of leadership throughout the program through the last 20 years to me has been an issue because you don't have guys like Ed Reed, Michael Irvin, uh, you know, Ray Lewis, guys like that, Dan Morgan, uh, Ken Dorsey, guys that were leaders on the team that set a standard themselves within the program that they expected everyone else to meet. And I think it became more about, you know, rolling out the football and pointing to the U on the side of their helmet and expecting wins as opposed to earning wins. And I think that's what's been lost in this program. 
yes, recruiting has not been what it, it should what it has been in the past, but also neither has player development. I think part of the problem also is they got into a habit of recruiting guys based on reputation and star rating as opposed to identifying the best players for their specific style of play, their specific mentality and approach and culture and how it fits within their program as opposed to what they've, they've been doing. Just picking out the guys who, hey, these guys are the highly rated guys in South Florida. We're going to go after these guys. Do they fit? Do they match? Maybe not. But hey, they're highly ranked. They'll work out. And that hasn't been the case. And I think also the turnover in coaching staffs has hurt. There hasn't been a lot of consistency in the program from a coaching perspective. And sometimes the coaching's the coaches weren't a fit. I mean, we saw that with Dan Enos. We're seeing that a bit with Josh Gaddis. We're seeing things that, you know, it, it's it's a culmination of different things that have led to this point. And I think modernizing the program from a facility standpoint, from a uh, philosophical, you know, X's and O's standpoint is hurt as well. We had that stint with Al Golden where he wanted to try to turn us into uh, a three down front team that lines up their linebackers 10 yards off the ball. And that did not help. That did not win any games. Um, playing guys out of position. And I think that's been the biggest issue is trying to create, recreate what was done in the past. And it just, it's never meshed. There's always been something missing. The offense has been good and the defense has been bad. The defense has been good. The offense has been bad. But overall, there hasn't been, to me, anyone within the program that you could point to and say, that guy was a leader. That guy was a dog. That was the kind of guy we needed on the team at that time to bring these guys together and take them to the next level. Because at the end of the day, when you're playing college football, especially in Power Five, you are going to run into teams that maybe aren't as talented on paper as you are, but they work their ass off. They play as a team. They play for each other, and they're going to go out there to beat you, and they are grown-ass men because sometimes you're playing a lot of these teams that have fourth and fifth-year seniors, fourth-year juniors, guys that have been in the program for a long time that understand their system in and out, and a lot of times in Miami, you've had their third offensive coordinator, their second or third defensive coordinator, fourth or fifth defensive line coach since they've been there. And there hasn't been the consistency in how you run the program. So it's been a, a laundry list of things. At the end of the day, I think what Mario is going to provide, you know, obviously we've seen it this week, is recruiting, bringing in talent and talent that he feels fits what he, his vision for the program is. But at the same time, it's consistency. It's that through line of the same type of programming system that you can build on moving forward. And I think that's going to help in, in the near future in the next two to three years. Excellent answer. I mean, I feel like you could have probably written the story for me. I'm just gonna, you know, transcribe what you said and, and yeah, just print, hit print. I'm I'm like the guy you cheat off in in, in college or in high school. This, this not, is not college. We, I'm not I'm not smart enough for the college cheat. This is why we bring a lawyer on the show and have him <laughs> uh, do the show every week with me. He could do my homework for me. I get off easy and and I'm and I'm done. Um, well, I've I've spent a lot of time this week because you know the athletic. I I don't. I mean, look, I've listened to all the Zoom calls. I, I've asked questions in, in these Zoom calls with the players, but I don't I'm not a beat writer anymore. I'm not in the sense of I cover the team and write every little story. So if you subscribe to The Athletic and you're like, why isn't Manny writing more Miami stories? I've kind of scaled back because I've, I've come to realize that the features, the analysis stuff, when you're four and four, nobody cares. Nobody wants to read any of that. It, it, it's really more of the big picture stuff. Right. And, and, and the big picture idea. So that's one of the stories I'm working on this week. The other one has to do with recruiting, and obviously Miami just got Cormani McLean, the, the number two overall player in the 247 sports composite, the cornerback out of Lakeland, which was a huge victory for Mario, um, yeah. ag again against the Gators. He's he's really beaten uh, Billy Napier head-to-head -head for several uh, big kids now. They're trying to actually flip a couple of Florida Gators DBs that are committed uh, to them now, uh, you know, committed to go to Gainesville as well. So, um, you know, from a recruiting perspective, 
this guy, the reason why I think he'll succeed here, really big picture, is because I think he's an excellent recruiter, and I think that's what what, what is ultimately needed. I went on uh, before we could film our show today, Carlos. I told you I, I was busy. I've been on a bunch of shows, podcasts, and, and you're a wanted man, bro. Serious. You, you, and, you well, drop all this hot knowledge, and and people are appreciating it. Well, I appreciate that. That's very nice of you to say. But, but you know, really, I mean, it's it's really it's what keeps me. It was, it's what keeps me coming back every week, man. I have to kiss your ass every once in a while. <laughs> um, from from an ego perspective, it's been nice to get compliments like that uh, from a couple of different people. But the Stars Matter podcast, it's a recruiting podcast podcast done uh, at the Athletic by Mitch Light, who's our recruiting editor, uh, Ari Wasserman, who's our national recruiting writer. Um, they do a great show every week and I don't know if you guys listen to it or not, but I would suggest subscribing to it because it gives you a good national perspective every single week of the going on. And they wanted me to come on basically to talk about Cormani and the big picture and really the state of Florida, because, you know, I I think this all kind of goes hand in hand, right? Why is it so hard to win at Miami? Well, talent, right? You've had Alabama, you've had Georgia, you've had Ohio state become the best, you know, Clemson become the best schools in the country. And pretty consistently, they've been the playoff teams every single year. And so um, one thing that I've done, and you know, I love my research, Carlos, because I'm a big nerd, is I start to chart things, right? Like blue chip. I love it too, bro. Give it to me. Give me the numbers. Give them to me. The the blue chips by state. And so Florida, Florida State, Miami are struggling, right? They're they're, they're Florida's four and four, Miami's four and four, Florida State's five and three. Um, if you go back to last year, before Billy Napier and Mario Cristobal took over, um, last year in the state of Florida, there were – hold on. Let me try to get 2022 up. Here it is. There were 53 blue-chip recruits, six five-stars, 47 four-stars. Um, four of those guys went to Florida. Five went to Florida State. Five went to Miami. One went to UCF. So that's 15 out of the 53 You only got 15 out of the 53 elite kids in the Sunshine State to go to a a state school. Um, That's 29%. That means the rest of them left. Okay, they they left the area. They went they went elsewhere in in, in the country this year since Mario and Billy Napier took over. And Billy Napier is a good recruiter. Okay, he worked for for Saban as well at Alabama. He's got the same pedigree as Mario in terms of of being able to build something. Apparently he's not good enough because Mario keeps taking his lunch, baby. Well, he he is the better better recruiter. Mario is. I didn't. Say, I just said Billy Napier is respected. Like he's not a bad recruiter. Is my point. Um, Florida, the state of Florida this year, eighty one blue chip recruits, nine five stars, seventy two four stars this year, the most in the country, more than Texas. Texas has sixty nine. Um, number for Texas. Yeah. So eighty one. There's thirteen uncommitted blue chips in the state of Florida. So right off the bat, you trim the number down. From 81, take away 13, that gives you a 68, right? Um, 14 of the blue chips in the state are committed to, to, to the University of Florida, eight to Miami, five to Florida State, and four to UCF. If you do the in-state percentage, it's 46% this year. So to me, so much of this really is, can you keep the guys that you're supposed to get to your school to come here? And, and I, as I said on the show with Ari and Mitch, um, I look at recruiting now, having done this for 25 plus years, is the more lottery tickets you have, the better chance you have to win. And I think right. that's that's been the issue for Miami. Um, they've, Like you said earlier, they've identified guys that they want to come here, but the best of the best don't stay here. And right now, Miami has the number one and number two recruits in the entire state committed to come to them. That's a That's something that hasn't happened often enough. That, that makes a huge difference. And that ha- I can't remember the last time that happened. And 
like you're saying, I think the reason why these programs are struggling in state is, yeah, they're getting a lot of blue chippers, but not getting the the best of the best. They're not getting the five stars. The really high end four stars are borderlining on five stars. So you got guys like Brandon Innes that are going to Ohio State. You got other guys that are going out of state to Alabama. Uh, you're going. You got guys going other places like Clemson that are more respected programs now uh, that have been become NFL factories essentially. And that's why they're, st- they're stealing these kids over there to those programs. And also the chance to play in a better conference, to be honest. And and I think that makes a huge difference. Not in the Gators' uh, uh, circumstance because they're in the SEC and they're still not getting guys. But I think not getting those top-end guys is what's hurt these programs. So what, what you have to do, like I said before, is if you can't get all those guys, right, if you can only get a couple of them, then you have to identify the ones that remain, which are the best fit for you. Not just go after guys to go after them to get the star rating and boost your recruiting rankings, but get the guys that you feel fit your program and your system best, not just from a, a physical standpoint, but from a mental and cultural standpoint, and build with those guys. And that's something that that hasn't been done either. Um, a couple more things to share regarding all of this. Um, you know, I, I, I talked to Malik and, and Alonzo Highsmith and many of the other guys in the past about Miami and what ails them. And, you know, one thing that everybody seems to bring up is the quarterback, right? Because the one thing we we maybe always take for granted is, well, you don't need a great quarterback, right? Ken Dorsey was a, was a seventh-round pick in the NFL, right? He was a guy who really was, was a backup quarterback. He wasn't an NFL starter. Um, but look at the best teams in the country this year, right? Um, Hennon Hooker, the reason Tennessee is averaging over 50 points a game and ranked number one in the country – isn't because they have some tremendous defensive line and offensive line. Those guys are good. They're good SEC linemen. But they but they're great because of how explosive their offenses are and really how incredible the trigger man is. Go back to LSU a couple years ago. Joe Burrow, yeah. number 1 pick. Same thing. Um another team that wasn't necessarily great in recruiting. Go to Clemson. Before Clemson won their first national title in 2016. Again, um you look at those recruiting rankings and we talked about this on Stars Matter. Uh, they were in the teens, Clemson's classes, yet they had the special quarterback. They had Deshaun Watson. They ended up with Trevor Lawrence. So that really can help lift a team that isn't on the same level as Georgia and Ohio State and, and, and you know, Alabama. Alabama, by the way, only one blue chip recruit in the state of Florida right now this year. That's one way you can help beat Nick Saban by teaming up against them. Yeah. Um, but you go back to Miami. And I, I'm going to throw this stat in my story whenever it runs, which will probably end up being Thursday at this point. Um, it says, since Ken Dorsey's last pass attempt fell incomplete in the 2002 National Championship game, Miami has signed 23 high school quarterbacks with the, la- with the last four that are still on the roster, right? The last four being Peyton Matoka, Tyler Van Dyke, Jake Garcia, and Ja'Curry Brown. Of the 18 no longer playing college football, only one, Brad Kaya, your 2017 sixth-round pick, was drafted. He never threw an NFL pass and is now in film school. Um, I, I think we cannot, again, like it's it's very easy for us to point the finger at Josh Gaddis this year, right, and say he's he's a terrible play caller and Miami's offense. But if you had that special quarterback, and I know Tyler Van Dyke is supposed to be drafted, but if you had that special quarterback, you could probably hide a lot of problems within your program. I agree. Yes. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a quarterback that's going to go in the first round and sometimes even get drafted because you've had special teams with guys at quarterback to really good college quarterbacks and weren't necessarily going to translate to the pros. You know, you've seen it in the past with Danny Werfel, Tommy Frazier, uh, Tim Tebow, all these guys that led teams to national championships that weren't necessarily great 
uh, pro prospects, but we're really good college quarterbacks, and that's what you need. And I think the the issue with TVD is that he has all the tools, and there was sort of a disconnect between him and Gaddis early on in the season, which they seem to have solved um, before he went out. And hopefully that continues, and they grow upon that and also continue to push the run game and, and get that going. But I think also what you need from your quarterback is leadership. And the one thing I saw, although Jake Garcia played average to blow average in this game, was these guys rallied around him for some reason. Um, and when he scored that win, that winning touchdown or that, or that winning two-point conversion against Virginia, everybody ran to him. Everybody was excited. Everybody was happy for him. And he seems like the type of guy that takes control of the team. And regardless of the circumstance, he's always trying to get his team up. And I think that's the next step that TVD needs to take. And I think that'll help things. And I think also the other thing that makes you a good quarterback is if you're not on your ass. I think you need to have a good offensive line to at least provide sufficient protection for you to be able to get the ball down the field. And Miami has been inconsistent with that as well. I would also venture that, you know, the playmakers at, at certain positions, right? Um, you, yeah. you look at who, who's been drafted, who Miami's actually gotten, uh, you know, and I went back and I looked at all the blue chip wide receivers. I'm going to go down the list. Okay. You stop me when you say, yeah, this guy's a stud in the NFL. Ready? Uh, Lance Leggett, Sam Shields, Jermaine McKenzie, Aldarius Johnson, Tommy Streeter, Devon Johnson, Travis Benjamin. He actually played in the NFL. That's yeah. One. And he's had a long career. Angelo Jean Luis never played here. Uh, Derek Griffin never played here. Stacy Coley played, was drafted in the seventh round, didn't play in the NFL. Braxton Berrios had a, had a really good career here, though. He was really good. Braxton Berrios, he's still with the New York Jets, but he's not really, uh, he's a punt returner. But he was uh, really good for Miami in, in his last season. Uh, Lawrence Cager, uh, Sam Bruce, Deontay Mullins, Amon Richards, neck injury. Amon Richards, well, yeah, he was, he was going to be a first round pick. Jeff Thomas, Mike Harley, um, Mark Pope. Marquez Ezard, Jeremiah Payton, Michael Redding, Xavier Restrepo, Brashard Smith, Jacoby George, Romello Brinson. Those are your blue chip recruits from 2004 at the wide receiver position to 2021. Tell me there's not a talent issue. There, there is, obviously. And like I said, they've recruited guys uh, in the wrong spots for guys that aren't fits. But at the same time, with the guys that are there now, it's still to be determined. we got to see what ends up happening. You've seen Jacoby George flash. You think Romello Brinson should have a bright future. Uh, Brashard Smith has flashed this season. So it, it's just a situation that sometimes it doesn't all mesh. But, yeah, they're not getting enough guys, playmakers on the outside, to help the quarterback be special. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, let's go to let's go to the running back position. These are the blue chip recruits since 2004. Okay, uh, Charlie Jones, Bobby Washington, Andrew Johnson, Javaris James. He was good. He was solid. 
Highland Robinson, Greg Cooper. Solid. Lamar Miller, drafted it in the NFL yep. Pro Bowler. That's one. Mike James. Solid. Storm Johnson, Eduardo Clements, Duke Johnson, drafted, played drafted. in the NFL, all-time leading yep. rusher. Yep. Joseph Yearby, Mark Walton, DJ Dallas, Lorenzo Lingard, Don Chaney Jr., Jalen Knighton, Cody Brown, Thad Franklin, Trevante Citizen. Right. Recently, it's been pretty bad. <laughs> <laughs> Again, um, but, but, but I guess my point is like, okay, these are the blue chips, right? Like, these are the kids who are supposed to make it. It's it, it's not it's not what Miami was by any stretch. Like you used to be able to go that list and say Frank Gore, Willis McGahee, uh, it, it, there's a Clint difference. Portis, right? Like there's, 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 a, there's a huge effing difference of of the names I just read to you. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's not the level or the caliber that you need to be elite. It's it's the caliber of player that you're seeing exactly what you're getting. You're getting the same results. It's like a computer, right? A computer could be the fastest, most uh, have the best processing system, calculate thousands or millions of calculations at one at one time. But if what you're putting in is garbage, you're going to get garbage out, right? It's all dependent upon the information that you're putting in. And if you're not getting the right guys or putting enough talent out there, then you're going to get these results, which are eight and four, seven and five, nine and three. That's pretty much it. Now, I know people are going to say, well, you didn't mention the transfers. Again, this is high school recruiting. I'm talking about guys that you bring out of high school. I'm not talking about the KJ Osborne's. I'm not talking about, uh, you know, Charleston Rambo who came in and was all ACC second team that was a transfer. I'm talking about high school evaluation. But that okay? highlights the problem even more because yeah. you're having to go outside your program to find guys to fill gaps that you should have filled through your recruiting. Again, these are blue chips as well. I'm not talking about the three stars that quote unquote overachieve because you're going to have examples of guys who overachieve and play. And that's that's what made Miami great, right? Getting the yeah. Ed Reeds who weren't. I'm not I'm talking about the recruiting rankings and how they're formed. They're formed. The reason Miami gets all these high rankings is because these are the guys that they recruited that are supposedly can't miss prospects. And what happened? I mean, it's just, you go over the list, you start going year by year by year and like, Holy crap. How many misses ended up happening here? Um, let's go to tight end real quick. Okay. Uh, again, David Njoku who's not on this list. He wasn't a four-star recruit. He was a three-star that Al Golden plucked out. He was drafted. He, he's obviously in the NFL now. Mm-hmm. Um, the Leon Farr, Bo Sandland, Jerome Washington. I mean, these are blue chip tight ends. Okay. Blue chip. Uh, Brevin Jordan drafted plays in the NFL. Great career. Will Mallory, Dominique Mamorelli, Elijah Royal, Jaleel Skinner. Those are your blue chip tight ends. Yeah. I mean, and Will Mallory has been up and down his whole career and it's, it's disappointing because you expected him to be here and take up once Brevin Jordan left, you expected him to be the man. And he, we consistently saw it when Brevin Jordan was injured that he would never really step up. He would have like maybe one or two games where you felt good about him, and then he'd disappear. And he's always been a terrible blocker, which is the other issue. The other position I would say, and, and, and the one that's always in surplus, is you're always going to have cornerbacks and safeties because it's South Florida. There's tons of DBs that are available all across the state. Same thing with defensive linemen. There's a lot of them. You're able to get a Gregory Rousseau, Jalen Phillips through the transfer portal. Um, but there's also been a lot of misses. And I would say more than anything, the linebacker position. Jesus. If you That's just, been terrible. If, if you just go to that, okay. Um, I would venture to say that the over the last, I mean, since what, 2004? Mm-hmm, since they moved to the ACC. Right. I would say, uh, I don't know if Denzel Perryman feels, fits in that. I think he was actually Well, I, I'm going to say Colin McCarthy, Denzel Perryman, and Dale Sharpton were three-star recruits. Okay, these are, again, non-blue chip. These are guys that the Miami coaching staff did a good job identifying. They weren't recruited by everybody in the country. 
and they developed them and made them decent players. Then I would say the three that pop in my mind are Quarterman, Pickney, and God, the guy from Northwestern that played for the Steelers. Um, uh, Sean Spence, right? Sean Spence, there we go. Okay, well, I, I'll give you the stat here. First of all, um, the Hurricanes have signed 17 blue chip linebackers since joining the ACC. Rivals, Rivals.com. Four are still on the roster. These are the four Rivals.com blue chip recruits Avery Huff, Keontra Smith, Chase Smith, and Wesley Besaint. And okay. Keontre Smith wasn't even a linebacker when he got he was a safety. He was a safety, right. correct. Um, but he was a four-star. Yeah. Um, of the 13 linebackers to leave Coral Gables, three were drafted. Sean Spence, Spencer Atkins, and Shaq Quarterman. This is since they joined the ACC. Uh, meanwhile, um, you have a whole bunch of other guys that didn't do anything. Willie Williams, James Bryant, Dimitri Stewart, Arthur Brown. I was going to say Arthur Brown. Jordan Futch, Raymond Buchanan. Travis Williams, Raphael Kirby, Jermaine Grace, DeAndre Wilder. Uh, and then, of course, you have the four that I mentioned earlier. Uh, Shaq Quarterman did get drafted. Spence did get drafted. But again, you know, you, this is a school you're talking about that produced Ray Lewis and Michael Barrow and and uh, Dan Morgan and John Beeson. And and so again, another position where you just go Belma, back. Belma, DJ Williams, we can go on and on. But 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 my whole point is like these recruiting rankings so inflated, right? Like, hey, these Miami, they're underachieving. Okay, well, I gave you the names. What did these guys do? Some of these guys went to other schools and did nothing. They still didn't yeah. make the NFL. Um, and that goes for all the positions, right? Lorenzo Lingard still hasn't played at Florida. Um, so again, a master recruiter, a guy like Mario, who I think is was taught by some of the best in the business, the Butch Davises of the world. Um, you know, was around Jimmy Johnson, has been around, you know, Nick Saban. They know how to identify. Even Greg Schiano. Greg Schiano's a good Greg, recruiter. Greg Schiano's a great recruiter. Um, th that to me is ultimately what's needed here is a guy that can not only identify, hey, the, the guys who have the rankings, but then identify character, right? And 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 bring in kids like Inez Cooper, who was a three-star that had very little interest in the state of Alabama, but he knew could be molded into a starting caliber interior lineman or defensive tackle, right? He knew this kid had something to him. That's what Miami has to get back to in a lot of ways. And, and so I'm going to, hopefully I capture that essence in my, why is it so hard to win at Miami story when I actually sit down and write it. But I just wanted to share some of my research and what I do. That's what I try to do every time I, I come on the podcast to share some of the things that I learn and, and come across, um, you know, so that we have some topical discussions here and it's not just X's and O's and who's recruiting who and, and yeah, just kind of pulling stuff. stuff out of our ass either. It's, it's got to be some fundamental information. Right. And that's why I hope you guys enjoy the show. All right. Well, let me first of all, let me just get here to the mailbag question list, Carlos, and we'll start talking these one by one. This is from this, this ought to be interesting. This is from Brandon BC Mantilla on Twitter. Do you expect Tyre to play on Saturday? And if not, is it fair to expect Jake and Ja'Curry to rise to the occasion on Saturday and keep us in the game? Well, listen, I I, I, I honestly, I don't expect Tyler to play. I think a lot of this is Mario being uh, doing a little gamesmanship, trying to get Norvell to prepare for both quarterbacks because the way Tyler looked coming off that field when he got injured, it seemed like a separation or at worst or at best a, a sprained AC joint, and that doesn't heal that quickly. Um, and especially in his throwing arm, which is a problem. And and you don't want to rush a guy out there. Like I said, he's going to be very sensitive to contact in that area. Um, and they have him end up getting hurt or more severely hurt and lose him for the rest of the season and maybe even ruin his career if he has a severe injury. So can Jake Garcia step up? Listen, we've seen guys uh, unexpectedly step up 
in, in these kinds of games. It's a rivalry game. Anything can happen. Sometimes when the lights are brightest and the moment is biggest, some guys enjoy that and they play at a different level. We saw um, Jaron Williams throw throw a bunch of for a bunch of yards against Florida State recently. We thought we saw Malik Rozier step up against Florida State. We've seen different guys and different quarterbacks step in there, take the reins, and make plays. Nikosi Perry and, and and be somebody that they're normally not to get a victory against Florida State in a rivalry game. So I think it's totally possible that Jake Garcia can make plays and get the win, but he has to be given the framework and the resources to do that. If you're going to put him in a box and make him play conservative the same way you did it against Virginia and tell him you can't throw the ball more than nine yards down the field, then it's going to be a long day because then you're hurting him. You're not letting him cut loose and make plays. And this is not the type of game that you play scared. This is the type of game where you throw everything you have at your rival and whatever it takes to win, it takes to win. And it's not going to be something where you're going to try and get three yards in a cloud of dust and win because that's not going to happen because they're going to come at you with everything they have too. Uh, can Curry Brown step up? I think there's packages for him like we've seen where he can be very effective, but I think they need to diversify those packages a little bit because for the most part, all we're seeing is a basic jet sweep motion and him riding that and reading and using basically using him as a wildcat running back like it was Ronnie Brown. Let's see him just catch and throw at some point to throw the defense off. Let's see some more play action. Let's see quarterback power where you actually have linemen pulling and leading out in front of him and adding extra people in the box in front of him to be able to knock out linebackers and defensive linemen and giving him a chance to make a play. Um, you know, like I said, anything is possible. Do I expect Jake Garcia to have a huge game? Not necessarily, but do I think he's capable of it? Yes. Well, one thing I'll say to, to Jake's defense is, you know, go back to last year with with uh, Tyler's first couple starts. It took him a while, and, and I think there's no question that, you know, they they scaled back the the offense and what they were going to allow him to to actually do. And, 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 and you know, I don't want to say they made him play scared, but they made him play conservatively in the sense that he wasn't throwing the ball wildly into <laughs> wherever he wanted. Uh, it was kind of like you had one or two reads. The ball's not there. Yep. Take off and run. And there were some awkward situations where Jake went to run. And it's obvious he's not. He's just like Tyler. He's not a mobile quarterback. I mean, he can he can probably pick up a couple yards. He can escape the pocket. But the reality is, he's not a runner. He's not Jacoby Brown. And I think ultimately, if Miami's going to have success in the future, Jacoby Brown is the prototypical quarterback that you need to win in today's college game. And so, um, hopefully, Jacoby's you know arm and his throwing gets to the level that you know it's not another anthony richardson the gators right now are you know they're four and four with with the super athletic amazing anthony richardson who's thrown seven touchdowns and seven interceptions um i'm not saying that's what jacari will be but you want him to be more than that if you're really going to get going and so that's why to me all of this conversation again going back to the quarterback discussion um you hope that miami finds those guys because if you want to be a tennessee you want to have a chance to win a national championship in a year like this, beat Alabama at home or, or have an opportunity to beat a Clemson at home. And then, you know, maybe get into the college football playoff. You're going to need a special guy behind center. I don't know. I'll add one one more point to this. I think what, what needs to happen in this game. And I think Josh Gattis is one of the things that he's failed to do this season, which I think Rhett Lashley was really good at. You have to identify your, your matchups, identify where you could take advantage of the defense one-on-one. And we saw Florida state do that last year on that long pass play at the end of the game uh, when they beat Cam Kitchens on the sideline, they identified he was on a slot receiver that he couldn't cover, and they went right at him. And that's what you need to do in this game. You need to give Jake Garcia the opportunity to make plays by putting playmakers in positions where you find the mismatches and go at him. Like last year with Jalen Knighton. They rode Jalen Knighton against Florida State uh, and got a lot of yardage out of that, got a lot of big plays out of it. And they need to find and identify ways they can get the ball to Brashard Smith, Colby, Colby Young. They could find these guys in the open field, Frank Ladson, use their skill sets 
to get in the best position possible to make big plays. And I think that's where where you talk about Gaddis and where he's failed as an offensive coordinator. I think you hit it on the head. That is it. It's devising ways to maximize certain things that players can give you, not utilizing Colby Young earlier in the season around the end zone to help you with the red zone, not putting uh, Jalen Knighton in space in the passing game, really where he thrives and making yep. him a between-the-tackles runner, which he isn't. If, if you're going to criticize Josh Gaddis, criticize him for that and also recognize it's still his first year as coordinator. He's still learning these guys little by little, and he's he's certainly not playing with his best offensive line. All right. Um, all right. Let's move on to Derek Torres's questions. That's D-T-O-R-R-28 on Twitter. A consistent thing I've noticed is that opposing offenses tend to figure out or make adjustments as the game progresses against our defenses. While our offense keeps doing the same thing or doing the same things, what are your thoughts on our in-game adjustments? Um, I think defensively, I'll start with the defense. I think Kevin Steele does a good job. I think he's he's gotten better at, at adjusting in the second half to what offenses are throwing at him. Obviously, there's a couple exceptions, but offensively, I think the issue is Gaddis has been stubborn with his system, believing that what he runs is good enough and that he doesn't necessarily have to adjust. You just have to run it better, and and that's been the issue. And in-game, you need to identify what's gone wrong and what's gone right and what opportunities have presented themselves because you can you can game plan all week based on film that you've watched of your opponent, but every team is going to bring in something special, specific to try and stop you uh, stop your offense. And if you're not prepared for that, and if you don't adjust to it, then you're not going to move the ball. And you're not going to score points. And that's happened a lot to Miami. And that's the same thing with the offensive side of the football uh, with the opponent. Opponents will come in with wrinkles, with different things to try and take advantage of whatever you're doing on defense. We saw Florida State do that last year. You know, I, I watched a bunch of film leading into the game. I thought I had their offense down pretty good based on their tendencies. And they come out and do some different things and confuse Miami and scored a bunch of points. Well, first of all, <clears throat> coaches get paid to, to make adjustments, right? Like it's easy yeah. for anybody to sit there and, and examine somebody on film and 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 make, you know, make notes on what you've already seen. It's it's being prepared for the unexpected. And that's why the previous coaching staff failed. How often do we hear after games? Oh, they did something we weren't ready for. Right. We didn't yeah. we didn't ex- we didn't see this on film. They saved this for us. Well, guess what? That's what happens in college football. And it's the best coaches, easy. the best coaches don't wait till halftime to make adjustments. The best coaches make adjustments after each series, and they they make adjustments series to series to be able to take advantage of what's what's going on there and to stop whatever's going wrong. I think in the case of the offense, I think sometimes there's only so much you can do in terms of in-game adjustments. A lot of these kids, unfortunately, you know, I think a big problem for Miami has been how football smart some of these kids are. I don't think some of them are smart enough where you can just draw something up on the board and it's, and it's easy for them to make the adjustment with their brain unless they've practiced it during the week. And that's part of recruiting. You have to identify the right yeah. kids to be able to make those adjustments and the ones that can't, you're limited by. But ideally what you're going to do is you're going to try and make those adjustments within the framework of the system you've already installed, not draw something up new, right? So right. let's say you normally call a certain play where you have a bunch of formations to the right side, the inside slot receivers are tight end, and you're, not, you're, you're just having them free release into a route. And on a specific play, right? In this instance, if you're seeing that they're bringing corner blitzes from that side because they know that tight end's coming into a pass route as opposed to protecting, you're going to have that tight end delay, chip, and then go or stay in and protect to make that slight adjustment, to make a maybe slide right instead of slide left on a specific protection, or maybe go fan protection instead of slide protection based on the look you're getting from the defense. Those are little things you can do in-game to help you. All right. Uh, a few more questions here to get to. Um this is from David Engelson on Twitter. We all had 
hopes and dreams in year one. My question is, internally, what was Cristobal's assessment of the roster? And what were their internal projections for year one, year one wins and losses? Surely they must acknowledge schematic failures with the, with the players they inherited. All right, first of all, Mario never bit the apple, right? Like, he never sat there and said, we need to win the Coastal. He never came out and said that. Um, I, you know, I think part of it was he didn't want to rip the guys that he had, right, that he's inheriting as a coach. You don't want to come out and say, I don't think they're that good. But I think he certainly made it aware that there were certain positions. I mean, like how many times in, in camp did he bring up the wide receiver position, right? Like yeah. s- saying, you know, we're not very good there, right? Like we don't have the depth that we need. How often did he talk about the offensive line? How often did he talk about, um, you know, other positions that that weren't up to snuff? I think internally the hope was match the record from a year ago, at least with this group, until we can start to get the guys that, that we're supposed to be getting here. Um, it's going to be a struggle to do now at this point. They're going to have to, you know, win three out of the last four to get to seven and five, and that includes pulling an upset this week. And I think the the biggest thing that maybe Mario was aware of coming in is maybe you had good frontline talent and you're starting 22, but the depth behind those guys was not what is he, what he was expecting. Uh, was not ne- the sufficient depth to be able to be a competitive team to win the conference. And that's the biggest issue. We've seen that now. You've had a bunch of injuries, and the offensive line has been mired by them, and they have not been able to get things going because the guys that have plugged in have not played as well as as, as the guys that they replaced. And we've seen the difference when Akeem Mesidor goes out. We've seen the difference when guys go out on defense. Luckily, it wasn't that big of an issue this week when James Williams was out, but it, it can be, when you, especially if you lose a corner. That could be a problem. All right. Um <clears throat> I, I think, I don't know if I've sh- shared this on this show or, or I know I've mentioned it to you in passing, but I, I know this, there's, there's been a couple of college coaches that have been on Miami's campus. I'm not going to name drop because I'm not going to attribute it to anybody, but I will just say there's people who are very well respected in this game who said prior to the season, um, this is very average talented team. And so it wasn't just Mario. It wasn't just the guys that came here and inherited it. It's other people have been by. It's not have- just you. Pissing on the parade like you normally do, uh, talking down the talent on the team. It's not just you, Manny. That's what everybody's saying, though. <laughs> All right, this is Ibis UM84, Harvzilla. Miami's offense through eight games under Gaddis is ranked 75th, 27.4 points per game with 422 yards of total offense per game under the last two years of Lashley, uh, Lashley when they were 23rd and 26 at 34 points per game and averaging 445 yards uh, per, per game. Do you think Gaddis' schemes pro style deserve another year? No. I, I think Miami has to be more of an open offense. Uh, I said this today on Stars Matter, that ultimately Mario Cristobal can bring in the talent here and get Miami to be as talented as a playoff team needs to be. I'm talking about the 12-team playoff. Uh, but if he's going to win national championship, he's got to recruit an elite quarterback. And he's got to have an offense that averages over 40 points a game. And running the football and grounding and pounding isn't the way to do that anymore. Well, it's not necessarily grounding and pounding in the long run that that I think he should be doing. But I do think you need to run the ball. Because like we talked a few weeks ago, the best offenses in the country are rushing for over 200 yards a game. Now, how do you get those 200 yards a game? How do you get to those 200 yards a game? That's all based on whatever you want to do schematically. I do think that the use of the tight end is important in our system or any system that we use. Uh, because of the talent that we've been able to get at tight end and continue to recruit, because we got three guys right now that are lined up, they're pretty damn good at tight end in this recruiting class. So using that to your advantage 
is something that they should do. I think what's more important than just a specific scheme or, uh, you know, formation set is being able to be multiple, to be able to be put yourself in a position that whatever you're lined up in, whatever you're going to run is aiming at the defense's weakness, aiming to put the defense in conflict and make them think about multiple things at one time. And I think if you could do that as an offense and get the ball to your playmakers, that's the way you win. You need to do whatever's best for you and fit the talent. Now, obviously down here, guys are more used to open spread offenses and things of that nature, but you can mix the two and get a pretty good solid offense and get guys to score points for you. All right. This is from Sean Van Furch on Twitter. Uh, one of our loyal listeners. Is there a status update on TVD? What is the over-under for consecutive quarters without scoring a touchdown? And is Raul hosting a tailgate? Three good questions there. Uh, I'll let you go first before I give the TVD update, which I just got on my phone. Well, first of all, I don't think Raul is allowed to host a tailgate at Hard Rock Stadium because that would be probably the worst thing the staff at Hard Rock Stadium would ever allow themselves to do because Raul would probably burn the place down. He's he's that wild. And I, I do not condone Raul hosting any sort of tailgate any or being in any situation where there is copious amounts of free alcohol. No. <laughs> what about the over under for consecutive quarters without scoring a touchdown? All right, let's go out on a limb. Miami scores a touchdown in the first quarter. Wow. If they do that, that'll definitely be a surprise to me, but we'll see. Um, I, uh, I have a status update on TVD and I have an over under on consecutive quarters. They've already got four consecutive quarters, right? I don't, did they score against Duke in the fourth quarter? No, they scored in the third quarter. So it's been five consecutive quarters without a touchdown for Miami's offense. I say they'll score in the first half. I, I, somehow, some way they'll score a touchdown in the first half. So I, I would say seven is the over under. Um, this includes a pick six or a fumble recovery for a touchdown or a kickoff or a punt return. Correct. As far as a status update on TVD, um, I, I just got a message uh, from somebody who says he very much wants to play, but he's taking it day by day. We will have to see. Sounds so, like no. Um, all right. This is from Daniel Danto3386. With the surprise commitment of Cormani McLean, have you heard anything of other key recruits taking notice? You would hope that has a triple a trickle effect. Um, you know, I think everybody's obviously paying attention to how Miami's class is coming together here. Uh, here are the main guys to basically uh, worry about. Ruben Bain, the defensive tackle from Miami Central. Um, I think he's obviously looking at what Miami's doing. Auburn just fired their head coach. He had a great relationship with 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 Auburn. I think Louisville is a factor for him as well. He's got two Central Miami Central teammates that are going to Louisville that are committed there. Um, those will be factors. Um, Samson Okunlola, the five-star offensive tackle. He's another big-time target for Miami uh, down the stretch here. And then Damari Brown, who, as we're recording this later tonight around 7, I guess is supposed to announce his finalist from what my understanding is. That's what he's announcing, not necessarily a school. He still has an official visit to Miami coming. Those are the three big names to worry about. Miami's in on other guys. Uh, but as far as a trickle-down effect, I think that's kind of overrated. I think every kid ultimately, um, they watch what the team's doing and they want to be a part of a special class, but I don't think they make decisions solely based on that. Yeah, and I think, you know, at the end of the day, it's not so much the trickle-down effect that's helping this recruiting class, because obviously we pulled McCormani McLean out of nowhere. Um, I think it's the Mario Cristobal effect. If the guy can recruit at 4-4 four and four and pull the number two player in the nation, he's going to be a dog and continue to recruit guys that maybe he's not, that aren't committed to him, uh, that people feel that he may not have a shot at, 
but he's not going to let go. So like, he's going to continue going after Brandon Innes. He's going to continue going after Hiking Williams. He's going to continue going after guys that people think he has no shot for, but he's still going to be in there. And I think at the end of the day, the recruiting class is going to be top five, top 10. All right. This is from G Fernie FG on Twitter. Uh, Manny, can we safely say this season is punted and the focus is on recruiting? <clears throat> I mean, landing five-star Cormani McLean is the highlight of the regular season. I wouldn't say they've punted on this season. No. I would say Mario's trying to maximize what he can out of what he's got for the final four games. And I think more than anything, he's trying to see what he's got beyond 2022 to 23. That doesn't mean he's punted on the season, though, because I think he, he wants those 15 bowl practices. Yeah, absolutely. And I think for him, foundationally, if he could see the progress moving forward, it lays a nice foundation for the following season, like you said. All right, this is from David Hernandez. Last question, and, and I know we got to go. We both have things to do here. D Hernandez or D Hernan on uh, Twitter. What offensive and defensive player position group needs to perform well in order for Miami to win? All of them. <laughs> Seriously, all of them. It's Florida State. You've got it. Everybody has to contribute. You cannot have one unit play poorly and expect to win the game like this. It's. It's. I know Florida State is five and three. They don't look that great. Um, but there's a reason why they're heavily favored in this game. These guys have lost three games to tough opponents, ranked opponents. Um, they're a lot better than they were last year. Their offense is clicking in a way that it hasn't in a long time. Jordan Travis has turned into a really good quarterback. Johnny Wilson is a problem. That dude looks like Groot from Guardians of the Galaxy, and he's much faster, and he has his arms just as long. Um, their running game is tough. Tayshawn Ward should be back. Their leading rusher, he's missed two games, and he's got over 483 yards. Their defense is solid, not great, but good enough. And you know what? If you don't play well on in all phases, you're going to lose the game. And you saw that happen. You've got to protect the football. You've got to be sound. You can't commit penalties. And then you've got to give it all you got. And that's it. Like the, the old school 80s based on give it all you got. Give, give it all you got. Yeah, I, I think the key to this all is Miami's defensive line. They've got to dominate the same way they did against Virginia. If they do that, they're able to disrupt Jordan Travis in the offense, Miami will have a shot. Obviously, if, if Tyler Van Dyke somehow plays, the offense is going to be better. If he doesn't, you're going to scrap for points as best you can. I got Florida State winning 27-19. to 19. What's your prediction? I will say this. The one unit that Florida State will try and take advantage of is the secondary because of the amount of big plays the secondary has given up this year. Jordan Travis has done a great job throwing the ball down the field. They are currently ranked second in the country in plays of at least 20 yards from scrimmage. That's impressive. They're an explosive offense. So that's what you got to watch for. Prediction time. I never pick Florida State, bro. Ever. I don't care what the record is. I don't ever pick Florida State. That would be blasphemy for me. Okay? And I understand you're going with your whole, I'm going to pick against Hurricanes the rest of the season. Thank you for that because that gives us good mojo. You're using reverse psychology, and I appreciate that. You're putting that out into the universe so we can get a good return. Thank you. I predict Miami. Ugh. 27-23. All right. You got the, the Canes winning by four. I've got them losing by eight. We will see what happens. Las Vegas has Miami losing uh, by at least seven and a half, so I'm sticking with Vegas and their prediction. You know, That's why always, I don't like going to Vegas. That's why I hate always, Vegas. They always seem to know something, Carlos. Uh, I appreciate it. Uh, thanks for coming on, doing another episode. Make sure to check out Carlos's podcast, the MIA All Day Pod, where he does a tremendous job breaking down the Canes in his own right. Uh, make sure also you on YouTube, like we are right now. Yes, you can watch us on YouTube. At some point, we will be back at the garrison. Couldn't do it this week. Halloween, complicated, a lot of things going on. Listen, we got kids, bro. We got a we lot got of trick-or-treating, too. Now, that is that is to say we're saying our kids, but you know we're getting some candy ourselves. Okay? Oh, there's no question about that. 
Mm-hmm. No question. There, hey, that's a good one to end the show on. What is your? Fa- I'm not a candy guy, but what is your favorite candy of all time? Well, I, listen, I I am a Reese's peanut butter cup. Kind Great of choice. Dude. Great choice. I, uh, I I think uh, anything that you can mix with ice cream and, and give yourself a, a solid uh, dessert that that works for you. That's hard to beat. I, I would put Reese's at least in the top three in terms of NFL first round picks. Um, I'm, I like Snickers. That's a one candy bar I kind of like. And to me, the underrated Hershey's Kisses. Very underrated. Very underrated. I agree, brother. Thanks for coming on. We will catch up soon. All right. 